You're listening to River City Mystery Podcast, the show that delves into the Evansville and surrounding tri-state areas mysteries, including unsolved crimes, murders, and disappearances, a show that isn't afraid to jump down the rabbit hole to investigate reports of local hauntings, sightings of UFOs and cryptids, among other paranormal phenomena. With your host, co-founder of the Humans of Evansville Facebook page, law office worker by day, insomniac researcher of the unknown by night, Matt Dyg. Welcome to episode 7 and thank you for joining me. We're going to be looking into a cold case from October 3rd, 1968. 36-year-old housewife and mother of two, Doris McDonough, was brutally murdered in her own kitchen in the middle of the day. No one was ever charged with her murder and the case remains unsolved to this day. October 3rd, 1968 started like any typical Thursday for the McDonough family of Evansville, Indiana. The family, consisting of Doris McDonough, 36, her husband William, 35, and the couple's two sons, 11-year-old Billy and 10-year-old Bobby, arose that morning around 4.30 a.m. Five days a week, both Billy and Bobby delivered newspapers to the surrounding neighborhood. On their bicycles, and always accompanied by their father William, the boys delivered newspapers to more than 100 homes in the area. On Sundays and Thursdays, however, when the newspapers were a bit heavier, Both William and Doris would drive the boys in the family car. That morning, however, after driving only a few blocks, the family's 1963 Mercury began to experience carburetor trouble, forcing them to return home. While Doris stayed behind to prepare a snack for the boys, William chaperoned them on their bicycles while they continued their route. William, Billy, and Bobby returned to the family's home, located at 1318 Southeast Riverside Drive, around 6.30 a.m., After having some milk and cookies, the two boys and Doris went back to sleep while William stayed up and read the morning newspaper. The three awoke around 7 a.m. and the family had breakfast together. Approximately one hour later, at 8 a.m., William left to drop the boys off at school before heading to work. At 1 p.m., William placed several phone calls home. However, Doris did not answer. Initially, William thought his wife had simply walked next door to a friend's house or went to visit her father, who was ill in the hospital. However, after phoning both and learning neither had seen her, William asked the neighbor, Jean Akers, if she could go check on Doris. At 1.10 p.m., Jean reported back that even after knocking loudly several times, Doris did not respond. William asked Jean to go over to the house once more, instructing her to use the unlocked back door if necessary to go inside. Just moments later, a hysterical Jean called William to inform him that Doris was dead. William rushed home, arriving there around 1.30 p.m. He was met with firefighters and paramedics who informed him that it appeared as though Doris may have shot herself. William was kept outside in an attempt to shield him from the grisly scene inside the couple's home. Doris was found on the kitchen floor of the McDonough home, still dressed in her pajamas. She had suffered such severe trauma to the head, face, neck, and back that investigators initially believed her injuries must have been the result of a gunshot. However, they soon came to the quick realization that Doris had been beaten to death. The autopsy found that Doris had been hit six to eight times with a heavy, blunt object, causing a severe skull fracture. Scratch marks believed to have been defensive wounds were found on Doris's wrists, indicating a possible struggle with her attacker. It was determined she had not been sexually assaulted. 
Bizarrely, two towels were found folded and wrapped around the wounds on Doris's head, leading investigators to theorize that her killer may have felt remorseful and attempted to render aid to the dying woman. Police found no evidence of a break-in and theorized the killer may have used the unlocked back door to gain entrance to the home. While the house itself had been untouched and nothing of value had been taken, it was later learned a claw hammer, usually kept on one of two locations, was missing from the home. Police immediately questioned William about his movements that day. According to him, after dropping the boys off at school, he had driven downtown and parked in a metered zone at 8.30 a.m. He then walked to a nearby auto garage to inquire about an appointment to have the car repaired. At 8.40 a.m., William clocked into his job at the Commonwealth Life Insurance Company. He spent 15 minutes in the office before leaving for an appointment with a client. William explained that on his way to the appointment, he noticed that his son had left a borrowed clarinet in the back seat. Not wanting the instrument to be damaged, he decided to drop it off at home. William claimed he was home for approximately 10 minutes. According to him, he and his wife discussed her plans to make ice cream cake for their youngest son's birthday, which was that day. On his way out, she asked him to take out a bag of trash, and as he exited, William asked his wife if she wanted him to close and lock the back door. She declined, explaining the breeze and sunlight coming through the screen door was nice, and she would close it later. Just a few minutes later, William arrived at Hoddle House Cafe to meet his client. The pair had coffee and chatted a while before William left. At 9.45 a.m., William arrived at St. Mary's Hospital to visit with Doris's sick father. He left around 10.40 a.m. after briefly chatting with Doris's cousin, a medical records librarian at the hospital. William then stopped by the home of another client before driving back to his work, arriving at approximately 11 a.m. Doris had made him a sack lunch, so he sat at his desk and ate. He remained in the office until he received a phone call from Jean about his wife's death. According to neighbors and friends, the McDonough family had no known enemies, and no one could imagine who would want to hurt Doris. Each person interviewed raved about how William and Doris's dedication to their children and to each other. They also described Doris as a spotless housekeeper, an antique collector, and just an all-around friendly and lovely person. Doris was laid to rest at Sunset Memorial Garden Cemetery. Under her name, her modest tombstone simply reads, Beloved Wife. After his wife's death, William and the couple's two sons remained in the home on Riverside Drive. William eventually went back to school and remarried. Later, he moved to South Carolina where he worked as a college professor. He passed away in 2019 at the age of 86. With no motive, few clues, and even fewer suspects, Doris's case quickly went cold and sadly has remained that way ever since. I found this case on the Unresolved Mysteries thread on Reddit. There's a user who contributes quite a bit. Her name is The Bones of Autumn. She's an author of a book called Unsolved Indiana, Murder Mysteries, Bizarre Deaths, and Unexplained Disappearances that just came out in October of 2022 if you want to check it out. I've got a link in the show notes to the Amazon listing. I'm going to credit The Bones of Autumn with a lot of the research on this case because if it weren't for her, I wouldn't have known anything about this case. And she did a great job of compiling all of the newspaper articles and facts of the case, which is very much appreciated. And you can check her out on Reddit. Her username is The Bones of Autumn, and I will have a link in the show notes directly to her account so you can check out the other cases that she's worked on. Eight days after the murder, there was an article posted in the Evansville Press by a Charles 
Schlepper, I think his name is pronounced, Schlepper or Schlepper, that outlines a discussion he had with Mr. McDonough. And he outlines every movement he made that day and provides basically a timeline of events. And I have, you know, written this down and and some things just don't make a lot of sense to me. So I'm going to go through the timeline as Mr. McDonnell reported it to this reporter eight days after the murder. And this is all, this is in the article exactly how it was reported as far as the timeline goes. So he reports that at 4.30 a.m., the family wakes up at their normal hour. He mentions that five days a week, the boys ride bikes to deliver 135 newspapers, and he accompanies them on those days. On Thursdays and Sundays, the whole family goes, Doris drives, and since this was one of those heavier days, the whole family had loaded up in the car to go. The papers, according to Mr. McDonough, were late that day, so the family did not get started until about 5.15 a.m. And then he mentions, of course, that they drove several blocks and there were carburetor issues, so they returned home. He mentions that he and the boys continued the route on their bicycles. At 6.30 a.m., he returns home, which is an hour later than usual. He says that they have milk and cookies. He reported that Doris and the boys went back to bed while William read the newspaper. At 7 a.m., he reports that the family had a breakfast, which I guess would be the second time they ate since they had cookies 30 minutes earlier, which is kind of strange. They had a second breakfast, or whatever you want to call it, and this is at 7 o'clock, and then they get ready for school and work. Before leaving, William and Doris apparently discussed the children's busy schedule, school sports, music lessons, and uh, the busy newspaper route. At 8 a.m., William and the boys leave. William drives the boys to school at Redeemer Lutheran School at 816 Jefferson. At 8.30 a.m., William parks his car in a metered zone at Northwest 3rd Street off of Court Street near his office, which happens to be the Commonwealth Life Insurance Company. doesn't mention, but I assume he's a salesperson for the life insurance company. However, before going into the office, he questioned a nearby auto mechanic about fixing the carburetor problem they were having with the car. At 8.45, he reported that he got to work. He checks the mail and attends to a few minor details. At 9 a.m., he drives home. His younger son's rented uh, clarinet was in the back, and he didn't want it to be in the back seat for whatever reason. Uh, According to Mr. McDonough, Bobby had considered dropping the clarinet lessons, so they wanted to leave. He had left it in the back seat so they could return it to the owner. I'm guessing Mr. McDonough did not want to leave it back there. And according to Google Maps, it's about a four-minute drive from that intersection to their house on Southeast, on Southeast Riverside Drive. You know, whether or not the traffic was would have been the same back then or not, I don't know. But, you know, four-minute drive, we'll just say it was four. We're going to be generous and say it was a, a quick drive, actually, because it works in his favor to for it to have been a short drive in my scenario here. 
So we let's say he got to the house at 9.05 a.m. He claims that he and his wife discuss upcoming plans to make cake and ice cream for the party that day. He claims that the storm door was locked from the inside when he got home, so this would have been the front door. So Doris had to come unlock the door, which she usually kept locked. As he was leaving, his wife handed him the garbage to drop off just outside the rear door. He asked if she wanted him to close the door, since the door faces east and the rays from the rising sun would brighten the house, she told him she would lock it later. Now that's actually interesting that she says that the sun, the rays from the rising sun would brighten the house, and so she told him she would lock it later. This is before there was a lot of technology available, of course. But there is an app called Sun's Path. And it's kind of neat because you can actually enter a, a location, an address, and a date, and a time. And it will actually show you how the sun was in relation to that particular address on that day, at that exact time. At 9... At 9 a.m. on that particular day, according to that that app, the sun would have been would have already risen mostly past the house to where the rays would have been beating through the the door. It would have been more of a that that would have already so to to have kept kept the door open for the continued rays to be coming in seems a little off. And I I have a picture a screenshot that I'm going to share. It's in the show notes at rivercitymystery.com slash seven. If you want to check out that, that graphic that shows where the sun was in relation to the back door. And I actually went to the house and was kind of like observing how the sun would be in relation to that back door. And it, and there's a garage back there. And it's also, it, it's, it's an odd thing to say that you're going to leave that back door open for the light at that particular time of the day. Just a strange thing to say. So that was at nine. So at nine fifteen, he he claims he left for the Huddle House. Apparently, it's about a four minute drive from thirteen eighteen East River Southeast Riverside Drive to where I think the Huddle House was at that time. So at nine twenty a.m., William arrives at the Huddle House for cl- coffee with a client. So according to his own timeline, at 9.25 a.m., he drives to St. Mary's Hospital to visit his sick father-in-law, James C. Hopwood. So he had he meets a client at the Hoddle House for coffee. And five minutes later, he's on his way to St. Mary's. It must have been a very quick coffee. Maybe they just decided to get together and stand in line and order the coffee and walk back out to the parking lot. And I don't know, there's no mention in any of these articles about whether or not the clients that he's meeting were actually talked to. So, you know, maybe maybe he did have some sort of bizarrely short meeting with someone at a coffee house um, and then take off really quickly. So at 9.45 a.m., he arrives at St. Mary's Hospital to visit his sick father-in-law at 1040. He claims he left St. Mary's hospital on his way out. 
He speaks with his wife's cousin, a medical records librarian at the hospital. And I'm assuming they talked to her. The police talked to her to, to confirm that. At 10.45 a.m., he arrives at a client's home on North Bakey. At 11 a.m., he arrives back at his office to eat a sack lunch prepared by his wife. So at 10.45, he arrives at a client's home, and then at 11 a.m., 15 minutes later, he's back in the office. Um, I'm assuming maybe he was, I know back then with life insurance, they would collect a premiums. So maybe he was just picking up a premium. I'm just going to throw him a bone there. Um, who knows? It was a very short meeting at the, with the client, apparently at 1 PM, he claims he calls his wife at home to tell her that he would pick up the children from school, whether or not that's a normal thing. I maybe because he had the car or I, I don't know who knows why he, maybe that was a normal thing. She, he says no one answered. So at that point, he calls the neighbor, Jean Akers, at 1312 Southeast Riverside Drive to ask if she was over there or if she had taken the family's second car to the hospital to visit her father. Akers had also called her earlier and uh, had no answer. So apparently she had already tried to call before William reached out to her. So multiple people have tried to call her at this point. And this is 1 p.m. Gene asks if he wants her to go check if the second vehicle's in the driveway. He says to check that while he calls the father-in-law. So William tried two or three times to call his father-in-law, but each time the phone line was busy. At 1.10 p.m., William is concerned and calls Gene, the neighbor, to ask if the second car is still in the driveway. It is. She said she went to the front door. This is Gene. Says she went to the front door and knocked. No one answered and the front storm door was unlocked. William asked if she could go around to the rear door and knock since she was a little con- since since he was a little concerned. As Jean was going to the rear door, William called and got a hold of his father-in-law, who said he had not seen his daughter. Seconds later, Jean calls William screaming that Doris was dead. William claims he was numb and drove and drove home after the ambulance and fireman arrived. At 1.30 p.m., William arrives home. He is held back by the EMTs due to the condition of his wife. At first, a fireman told him that his wife had shot herself with a gun. Then he later learned from a detective that his wife had been beaten to death. According to the, um, this article, William said he has no idea who would have done this or why. He says it's, quote-unquote, still disturbing, which I assume it would have been eight days later. And he said that neighbors in recent months had complained of prowlers in the area. Now, according to the medical examiner, the time of death was between 9 a.m. and 1.40 p.m. on that day. It was reported in another article in the Evansville Press that a physician said death was due to an unmerciful beating, and a policeman said it was the worst I've seen of that kind of crime. One year after the murder, there was another article in the paper that references that the only item that was missing from the home was a claw hammer, which was kept in a basement toolbox or in a pantry drawer just off the kitchen. A hammer was among the few bits of evidence later found by detectives, but police said that they were never sure if that was the murder weapon that was used. So apparently the claw hammer was originally, according to the earlier reports, was missing from the home. That was the only item missing. But here, this article is saying one year later that it was 
among the few bits of evidence later found by detectives, so apparently that claw hammer shows back up. The article also mentions that because of a lack of a motive or a suspect, police questioned McDonough and gave him a lie detector test. The results were labeled inconclusive by the police. The same article says that McDonough, when recently asked about the incident, said he would rather not talk about it. Quote, the less said about it, the better. End quote. William McDonough went on to be a college professor at Hesser Business College, and he was the former owner-operator of Brooks Cleaner in Chester, South Carolina. He apparently volunteered with the Chester Nursing Center, where he was known as the Bingo Man. His obituary states that he died on October 28, 2019, at the age of 86. It references his second wife of over 45 years and two sons. The obituary neglects to mention anything about his first wife, which I suppose ties in with his mentality of the less said about it, the better. I disagree with Mr. McDonough. I don't think the less said about it, the better. I think more needs to be said about it. This poor woman was murdered in cold blood in her own kitchen. And her own husband, in quotes in the actual paper, seemed more concerned about sweeping it under the rug than he was finding the actual killer. While it may be too late to bring Doris's killer to justice, my goal is to shine some light on her case so that she's not forgotten. And that brings this episode to a close. Thank you so much for listening. And for those who are interested in decentralization and privacy and blockchain technology, feel free to check out the show on the Musai stream, which is part of the Deso blockchain. I have a link to that at rivercitymystery.com. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, take care.